Welcome back to another episode of the Trauma Healing Collective podcast. Thank you for tuning in again this week as we talk more about how to destigmatize trauma in different fields and areas. We are so grateful to have you listening. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone. This is Shay Atkin with the Trauma Healing Collective podcast. And I'm just going to jump right in because uh, we have a lot to talk about with today's episode. Um, we have Dr. Taylor Dean uh, as a guest on this. And I'm going to go ahead and say his bio and then explain why he's here with us today. Uh, so, Dr. Taylor Dean is an independent scholar who holds a doctorate from Florida State University in religious studies. He has broad expertise in 19th and 20th century American religious history, but his research has largely been split into two areas. The first surrounds the regulation of vice in the United States history, with particular emphasis on the regulation of alcohol and narcotics. The second is on new religious movements, with particular emphasis on the relationship between new religions and therapeutic cultures. So, you know, this is a special guest because this happens to be my partner, Taylor, um, and just a little bit of personal history. One of the reasons we wanted to invite Taylor to this podcast is um, before we were dating, when we were best friends, we were best friends for a year before we started dating, um, I was disentangling my own religious history. And I would ask Taylor all sorts of questions um, to try to get, you know, context and historical accuracy, because I just was confused about a lot of things. And so he really, really helped me, um, you know, just kind of deconstruct that stuff. And so our signature question that we ask everybody is, what are you doing to help destigmatize trauma? And, you know, I'm just going to answer this because he's not going to answer this question. And from my lens, what it helped with is being able to have my own personal story and then having somebody who is a historian who literally can help me see um, kind of lies I was told and be able to see, no, this is actually what happened. This is cultural context. This is the history of this particular thing you're asking about was so helpful um, as I was trying to emotionally untangle stuff. You know, it was a very kind of measured, um, easier way of understanding uh, what, what was actually happening with religious trauma. Um, and also Kim and I have a recurring spiritual abuse group that we do. And um, a lot of people have been harmed um, in, in religious settings. And so, we really have wanted Taylor, we wanted him to come to our last one, but timing didn't work out to be able to just kind of um, debunk some myths and to be able to talk about his field and some misconceptions that people think about, especially the word cult. He's going to, uh, you know, kind of break that down and dissect it for us. Um, so we did a horrible job with that, by the way, in our <laughs> we did, which is why I'm so, so glad we're doing this. So I've talked enough, but I wanted to go ahead and kind of set that before we kind of go into our conversation to kind of give context for why we have Taylor um, at this intersection of our therapeutic culture and his um, religious studies. So Taylor, I'm going to go ahead and pass it on to you. And then Kim has got a question for you. If, if you want to say anything first, and then Kim can ask, ask a question. 
Well, thank you for that introduction. That was very nice. Um, but no, I mean, I will just let you jump in. I'm happy to be here and, you know, be able to talk with you both about these sorts of things. It makes me feel like my PhD is worth a little more than what I paid for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're so excited to have you here. So thank you. Yeah. Us stumbling over that conversation in the group was like, this conversation is a must. So we're really grateful to have you. Um, so Shay kind of alluded to this a little bit in her introduction, but our first question is what are some of the common myths about your field of expertise? Right. Yeah. There's a few things that come to mind immediately. The first is that, um, people tend to assume that people with any kind of degree in religious studies um, is necessarily either very religious or some kind of priest or a minister ordained in some way. And while there's lots of people that that's true for, there are also lots of people that that's not necessarily true for. So there are lots of people out in the world with degrees in religious studies that um, are not priests, they're not ministers. Um, but, you know, so that's sort of one of the things that tends to, to trip people up. The other is, I think, um, sort of what scholars tend to be interested in versus what maybe some of the general public uh, people or non-specialists are interested in when it comes to religion, religious studies, religious history. And one of the big ones that used to always come up when, when I would teach sort of intro classes with students is... Um, questions of authenticity. Mm. So people would uh, always bring these questions of, well, which Christians are the real Christians? Like which ones are true Christians? Or, it, um, you know, thinking of any number of controversies throughout history or the present of uh, competing ideas of, of Christianity or competing ideas of, of Islam or, you know, pick your sort of religious tradition where those there are always those contestations of what authentic Islam or authentic Christianity looks like for different people. Um, and so students would often want to know like, well, who's right? Um, or which one of those is like the real version? Yeah. It's like, well, they're all real. They're, mm -hmm. They're people in those traditions telling us that that's what they believe and that they're a true Christian or that they're a true Muslim or a true Buddhist or however that sort of comes out. And so students would tend to be uh, mad in some instances uh, where it's like, oh, well, they're all real. Like, hmm. next question. Next. And they're like, no, no, no. But like there, but some of these maybe like we don't like. And it's like, sure. But that doesn't mean they're not real, which sort of, and all of that sort of tends to revolve around like an idea of like authentic belief or authentic practice, um, which is really hard to determine because ultimately I can't really peer into someone's mind and know if they're being 100% honest. And so that, that idea of like duplicity sort of tends to be something that comes up a lot. And it's not a question that most scholars spend a lot of time on because to people like me, what's interesting isn't whether or not someone's belief is authentic or whether or not they're faking it or they're real. It's, well, but there's a real sort of power struggle between those two groups or maybe more than two groups who are trying to talk about who the real ones are. 
I can I can look at what they're saying against each other. I can chart that. I can try to think of, you know, the internal power dynamics, the social issues, the political context, the theological context. That gets me closer to understanding sort of what all the different layers of that contestation and what's really going on is versus trying to figure out who's real and who's fake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I haven't heard it kind of like broken down like that before. Yeah. Well, so this is the one that everybody wants to know. Um, what is the history of the term cult and how is it relevant to those who have experienced religious or spiritual trauma? Good question. Um, if I get too far afield or forget to answer the second part, mm -hmm. remind me. Um, because the history of the term cult is, is essentially two histories of the term cult. Uh, the first history starts in the late 19th, early 20th century, when a couple of religious studies scholars um, got together and were thinking about really how religions evolved over time, how they morphed from maybe small groups into something that was global in scale. And so a lot of late 19th, early 20th century religious studies literature was in one way or another tracking sort of that phenomenon and trying to figure out how it happened in different contexts and what it meant in different cultures. And so cult, you know, sort of derived from a Latin word that literally just means sort of the countryside. It's like mm -hmm. the non-city. Um, really? And so in like the Roman context, like the cultus was like the sort of small religious communities that happened outside of the city. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And so, cult in its sort of original fashioning by scholars in the early 20th century was really just a way to talk about a small religious group. Um, it was probably newer, it was probably an offshoot from maybe a different religious tradition or sort of a sect. Um, and it probably wouldn't last very long. It was generally one of these like ephemeral kinds of like, it pops up and then after a generation it kind of disappears and it may have lacked a lot of that institutional hierarchy structure, things that tend to help something like a small group become a larger institution over time. Um, that was distinguished from like a sect, which was sort of that next level up, which is more of a smaller oppositional, but still sort of much more stable group of people that existed over a long period of time. And then eventually you got the sort of the religion, the sort of relatively stable group with history, structure, traditions, that sort of thing. And so cult in that sense is just sort of a sociological term used to mark something relatively new, fairly ephemeral, um, but still fairly recognizable as something religion-like, or at least with the potential to become a religion. Fast forward about 50 years, a little more, and we get to 1978. 1978 is kind of the line of demarcation from when cult really goes from just sort of a little used concept in religious studies. Occasionally it comes up in different ways uh, before then, 
to where it really becomes this really derogatory um, sort of term to describe religions or religion-like things that tend to be newer, but super authoritarian in their leadership, probably deploying elements of like mind control. And I put that in scare quotes intentionally, um, aggressive in their proselytizing, um, unfamiliar and largely um, in some ways like targeting either middle-class individuals or like the youth. And so before the late seventies, kind of not a big deal term, but by the time we get to the late seventies, early eighties, it's sort of what everyone tends to understand it to be now. They're groups that brainwash people that take away independent thought that control sort of the ins and outs of their entire being. All of that switch really has to do with um, the murder suicides of the members of the People's Temple in Jonestown, Guyana in 1978. Um, I could give you a whole spiel on Jonestown, but I don't know if it's really important for our discussion today, but that moment and sort of those 900 people about roughly, I think 400, 500 were like children below the age of 18. Um, dying in a very violent way in the jungle and then being left to sort of be found several days later really sort of shaped how Americans thought about cults um, and really sort of set the stage for all of those things that came after it or could be applied to things that came before. Um, it's not a term scholars use anymore, except to sort of tell this history. One of the easy tells for finding out if someone is sort of a credible religious studies scholar or someone who maybe isn't um, is how often they use the term cult and in what way. And so if you ever see anybody on the news who's like cult expert, they are not. They are someone who is uh, buying in to sort of this category and trying to dismantle these different kinds of groups that get these labels. Okay. Scholars don't use it because, well, for a couple of reasons. A, the category in and of itself is not incredibly useful because a lot of the dimensions of it have either been either difficult, if not impossible to prove. So like ideas like brainwashing, like which just fundamentally doesn't exist as the concept is understood. Um, what is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, this is really fascinating to me. I know you've shared it with us, but I know yes. our listeners will probably find it interesting. For sure. Yeah. So, so brainwashing is a Cold War concept through and through. Um, and so it's, it's created in the 1950s um, by a CIA agent slash uh, journalist who, who writes a book in like 1950 called Brainwashing in Red China. Mm. And basically the point of this book, which sort of set the stage for all of the other understandings of the term after it, was essentially to try and help push some propaganda um, on why 
military members, so like soldiers who were in the Korean War, were defecting publicly to either North Korea or the Chinese? The answer was really simple. They were prisoners of war and they were tortured and they were made to make public pronouncements against the United States. It's not very good PR on anyone's side. And so brainwashing was a concept that was introduced to sort of help become a way to galvanize support for American interests abroad and help protect American citizens from sort of outside influence and communist infiltration. Um, it's mostly a propaganda concept in the way that it's popularly understood as a kind of, you know, having thoughts implanted, you know, having a sort of totally different persona where, you know, there are different trigger words that force someone to act almost in sort of a robotic fashion um, without thinking, without knowing what they're doing. By the, shortly after the term sort of started to come up in popular culture, psychologists were pretty quick to say, yeah, that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's not a real thing. Like torture is the explanation for, for all of these things. Like the, the physical violence that these soldiers have suffered and other people like them later on in other different contexts. That's how that works. They're not different people. They don't have these hidden inner selves that have been conditioned to do different things. Well, it just sounds like PTSD, honestly. I'm gonna say, right. Yeah. I'm just like, those are like kind of textbook PTSD symptoms, right? Exactly. And so the, the concept was kind of BS from the start and the CIA and Hunter, the, the guy, the, the journalist, they all knew this, hmm. but it took off in pop culture. Um, you know, different American news media, politicians, they really latched onto the concept because it was useful in distinguishing sort of what the communists were in sort of the Soviets, like the Russians, like they were this thing over here. They were evil, they were godless, they were communists, and they wanted to make Americans everything that Americans weren't. Mm. And so it became a thing in popular culture that still, in some circles, especially if you're a child of the Cold War, has some purchase and at least comes up a ton in sort of popular conversation that concept gets linked to cult pretty quickly um, because one of the common charges against quote-unquote cults is that they are essentially turn children or youth in particular against their families. They give them new ideas um, that are against sort of the values or maybe the religious tradition that they were raised within. Um, And so it becomes this way to sort of separate the us versus the them, the good versus the bad, those sort of simple binary terms that often fall apart within seconds of close scrutiny. I'm just smiling because I think, um, (laughs) I think that like college might have been considered brainwashing for me (laughs) from my religious trauma. It's making me laugh a little bit. <laughs> no, it probably was. I mean, there, there's all sorts of different movements throughout the 20th century, currently and before in the U.S. of 
you know, different religious institutions establishing their own kinds of religious schools to protect from the sort of quote unquote outside yep. secular society that would turn people more worldly um, to use sort of a popular evangelical term. Um, That's homeschooled for two years. Yeah, well in the homeschool movement, we don't have time to get into the homeschool, but there's two massive kinds of homeschool movements. There's like, there's the, there's the super conservative like religious homeschooling um, that um, that happens to sort of remove from those secular environments so that you're not um, exposed to things that may corrupt you. And then there's the complete opposite of that, which is sort of like the hippie, almost uh -huh. like super progressive kind of homeschool right. where the world's already kind of so just screwed up that the you know, the public education is so defunded or whatever that they don't right. feel like their kids will get an education right. um, in sending them there. So they sort of take it all on its own. Mm -hmm. um, there are things in between, but those two extremes for like, are doing it for pretty much the exact same reason, but with complete opposite sort of ways of getting to that reason. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so... I love it. So cults, brainwashing, sort of, they tend to start going hand in hand, particularly in the late 70s um, and into the 80s and 90s, the sort of bastion of the American culture wars during that sort of decades long fight that we're still definitely in. It, mm -hmm. you know, it ebbs and flows, but it's all part of it. Yeah. And to sort of get to the question of why does that matter for people who have experienced religious trauma, is uh, a couple of things. I think first, uh, one of the ways that the term cult operates is it tends to put a lot of emphasis on one individual, the so-called charismatic leader who is responsible for um, essentially controlling everyone in one sense or another. And that's A, not a very good characterization of what happens within any kind of community of people. There's always a back and forth. Things are always being figured out, even in more authoritarian kinds of communities. Like no one just has sole control over everything with no pushback. And so in certain individuals who have experienced religious trauma from childhood, adulthood in certain communities, the term cult can sort of be an easy thing to latch onto as is, is sort of a, oh, well, I wasn't raised in a religion. I was raised in a cult. That's why I'm so messed up. That's why those things happened. Um, because what I experienced was an aberration of what religion should be or is in normal context. And so it can be a way for people to kind of latch on to a label that maybe gives them a little comfort initially mm -hmm. but kind of amounts to victim blaming of themselves mm. like how could I know any better I was raised in a cult yeah um like so that's that's one of the ways to sort of tie that in where and the reason scholars don't like the term cult you know for that reason is you know it 
takes the agency of the individuals who are operating in those spaces or in those communities, in those religions, away from them. Mm-hmm. And it says you didn't choose to be here or, you know, you, you didn't have any choice in any of this. You were just, you were just thrust into it. You had no brain activity and you were just walking through. And that's really unfair to people who are just doing their best more often than not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was way better than our attempt to to explain. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you did fine. We did our best. The one with the PhD in us. You explained better than we did. We're we're therapists. (laughs) We'll send this to our, our first group they they will appreciate it for sure for sure yeah mm-hmm. and I feel like there's so many things I didn't say so feel free to follow up on any it's a lot all at yeah. once and it, so I, I I recognize that it's sort of we'll, we'll have more that's one of the things I will say that we did get in our muddled attempt to explain this uh in, a, in the way that you did that we failed miserably with but I think a lot of the pushback that we got was that I think for some of our group members that felt the word cult felt empowering because mm-hmm. it's like, it's almost like a middle finger to like the people that harmed them. Sure. So that, that was a little bit of the pushback I think that we got. And so, um, I think for some people it is a little bit like, a, you know, that wasn't clicking for them, but I think maybe the way that you articulated it will help Mm-hmm. them understand a little bit more what we're trying to say yeah no and it makes sense I mean especially in in healing like every yeah. there's no real right or wrong way to do that um yeah. the the term cult just because of the baggage that it has and because of the way that it's been thrust on on a lot of just people trying to make a better way for themselves um you know, the, the thing I used to always tell, you know, the students was that there's no such thing as a cult. There are only religions that people have decided that they don't like for whatever reason, sometimes for, for, for very reasonable reasons, um, and sometimes for, for not out of fear or, or whatever. You know, my, my job as sort of religious, a religious historian is not necessarily say these people over here that you've called cult members are blameless or then these people over here are perfect or not. It's that I tend to not like the, the lack of nuance that comes with any kind of yeah. that discussion where it's like, well, there are lots of really sort of problematic people in lots of different things. Okay. They're not just relegated to religion. Religion is, if nothing else, a thing that people do. And because it's a thing that people do, um, it's always changing. It's, it's adaptive mm. and it can be highly problematic and it can be the example of the best of humans and it can be the worst, mm-hmm. but mostly it's everything in between to one in one way or another. Yeah. And it's more of a people problem, right? Isn't that kind of what you said is like religion is made up of people. And a lot of times we have problems with the people that are in religions. Absolutely. So, um, you know, and that's not to say that that's not to either say that, oh, all religion's not true or, or, mm-hmm. or, or to, to sort of denigrate or support any religious person. Like there are many people 
and I've met many of them. I mean, I went to divinity school for three years. I've known a lot of pastors and a lot of people in training, chaplains, all sorts of stuff. And I think religion is one of those things where for the people that it works for, it's beautiful. It can be the most like empowering, life-giving thing. And then there are others who it just doesn't work for, for whatever reason, whether that be the practices, whether that be the politics, whether that be certain individuals. And there's a lot of in-between where on any one day, someone may go to a religious service and have the best time. And then a week later, they have the worst time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's never just the simple, this is good, this is bad. Mm-hmm. And that's what the sort of cult obfuscates. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't allow us to actually look at, well, what are people doing? What, are, what, are, what was the intention behind maybe some of these practices that maybe turned out really bad years later or something? Like, what's going on? If yeah. we just call it a cult, it sort of doesn't allow us to investigate us. Mm-hmm. And if I walked up to you and said, oh, you're in the cult, tell me about it. <laughs> you wouldn't talk to me right? because yeah. I just insulted you. And so if I'm trying to understand something as a scholar or just a person trying to say, what's this thing about over here? It doesn't inspire a lot of confidence or grace right off the bat. Right. Yeah. Even thinking about the reverse side of that too, as we've talked with so many people who have experienced spiritual abuse that, you know, a lot of times the, the reverse of that is being brought up in a household where it's like, this is the only thing. And so there is no option to question or have nuance or mm-hmm. explore something else. And so that's where a lot of, that's where the breeding ground for harm is, is made because there is no space for that. So I think it's sure. a good point for both sides of that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no notes on that. That's just full agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that kind of brings up the next question, and this is kind of another two-parter. Sorry, we're throwing all these um, multi-layered questions at you, but I think you can handle it. Um, so how might, as we're working with people who have been harmed by uh, religion, how might religion be helpful and harmful to somebody who's working mm-hmm. through the trauma? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question because, um, everyone will be a little bit different and, and what they, as, what they need, um, and, and what works for them and what doesn't work for them initially or sort of later on, um, depending on the nature of the harm or sort of the, any of that, some people may feel massively uncomfortable with, with going back into any kind of religious setting, even the most like minimal kind of thing. And I'm not a therapist, but I would tell them that that's fine. Um, if you know, if religion is one of those things, whether it be the same religious community or a different one or a completely different religion altogether, if that's not what is going to be beneficial and if they're not going to feel supported in sort of their journey, I would tell them to not do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of comes with its own cost 
potentially mm -hmm. uh, depending on how uh how close the community is how connected they already in, are into it that you know brings its own challenges but certainly if they don't think it'll help they shouldn't like cling to it in a way that um you know may not allow them to do all of the healing that they need to um with the understanding that if they decide that it works for them later you know it's not going anywhere they'll mm -hmm. have options yeah um and on the reverse side of that you know there are going to be other people who leave a tradition or a denomination or a, or a community that find sanctuary in a different one mm -hmm. or that find a smaller community within the one that they were harmed by and that can help support them and, and rally around them um so it, it could go either way and people should feel empowered to trust themselves and do what they think is best in, any, in either of those cases. Yeah. Um, I love but, that, to trust themselves. I think that's the uh, most thing. Yeah, with agency, right? Mm -hmm. Have that agency and say, hey, this thing that isn't working anymore, I'm gonna do something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all about choices. And, you know, one of the things that both is very emblematic of American religions in particular, but especially sort of since the mid 20th century, is that there's a lot of options. You know, different scholars have described essentially the American religious landscape as a marketplace, hmm. as uh, a kind of commercial venture of in many ways, you kind of can pick and choose what you want. Um, you can take a little bit from here, you can take a little bit from there, and you can create something kind of your own. Or, you know, if you have a falling out with one tradition, whether it be over abuse or trauma or just because you got bored and didn't like it, mm -hmm. you've got options. Yeah. Um, Quite a lot. <laughs> people respond to those options differently, and some are mad that they exist but yeah but if one thinks that they could find something in religion that could be useful for them but not with what they started with americans have been exploring religions for since america they've they've yeah. pretty they're pretty good at just <laughs> just figuring things out and moving from yeah yeah well, okay, so that brings us to the next question, which we get a lot of uh, in our group and, and as, um, as people who work with trauma, this is a question from a lot of people. How can trauma survivors reconcile the feelings of anger, resentment, or betrayal towards their higher power or their spiritual beliefs as they're kind of dissecting and deconstructing this? Yeah, no, it's a really good question because... I mean, I think one of the important things that I would say is that the, the sort of common assumption about religion is that it's special. Um, and it is to a degree, like it says it's special. It says, you know, we, we have access to the divine in this way and you can access it through this way. Please come join us on this day of the week through these procedures. And it's not to say that that's not true. It may very well be. 
but it's also important to keep in mind that as we've already said like religion's just people and so you can it's it's easier to at least in my head as someone who hasn't experienced religious trauma it's easier for me to sort of conceptualize oh I was harmed by a person I wasn't necessarily harmed by an institution. I wasn't harmed by God or the divine. I may have been harmed by someone in the name of God or in the name of the divine or in the name of this religious institution. The religious institution may have abandoned me and told me that I was you know, full of it and that those things didn't happen or that I deserved it. And all of that's valid and real. But at the center of that is people. And, and that can easily be lost because religion is always so much bigger than those people. It's easy to forget that at the center of it in the day-to-day and all of it is people. Um, I don't know if that's helpful to someone if, if they've gone through those kinds of, of traumas or experiences, but that's at least a starting place. To where if you're looking for that kind of reconciliation, especially if you uh, are, are one who is like, I really need sort of the divine, I need the spiritual, I need the religious in some way, that may be at least a place to start. Mm-hmm. So would it kind of be similar to like 12-step programs, like working on the resentment with a person and like starting to extrapolate like okay this wasn't necessarily the religion this was the pastor this was the youth pastor this was the clergy or whatever and start kind of processing the hurt from individuals to then maybe be able to retain some of you know maybe the the rituals that they actually like from whatever tradition they're in is that something no i think absolutely that could I think that's definitely valid because um, it, it, the the more abstract things tend to be, uh, the, the harder they tend to be to sort of name or nail down or process, or even from sort of uh, a sort of scholarly point of view of me trying to understand human behavior and those. It's it's harder to know what's happening, you know. If so, being able to just sort of separate them at least initially Mm -hmm. so that you can sort of work on it work through it piece by piece instead of feeling like you have to take on the entire institution of of whatever you're dealing with because that's just really big yeah and I don't know if anybody necessarily has the the bandwidth or stamina to sort of take that whole bite all at once when you know it's taken in chunks Well, and I think for somebody whose spirituality or religion is like a part of their identity or a big part of their lives or their self-care or or fill in the blank, that actually is a little bit freeing because it's like, well, I don't have to give up my entire religion or beliefs or spiritual practices. I can just like be angry at that person or I can Mm -hmm. just like process my hurt from that person. I don't have to necessarily relinquish everything surrounding the or everything that that person was connected to so it's actually really helpful yeah Yeah, absolutely and I mean there is also sort of going back to the sort of the same point in just a different way like 
because religions are people, um, you can take of them what works. And especially in those instances, like, and, and even with sort of the, the categorizations, those questions that students are always concerned with about authenticity of like, who's the real one of these? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone is. Um, and so it could be you who's saying, this is the shit that harmed me. And I'm casting that aside, but this right here works for me. And that's mine. Yeah. And you get to do that. Yeah. Um, which, yeah. Yeah. So it can be liberating. Like, yeah. screw this, I don't like it, but I'm gonna keep this for myself because it works. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of precedents for that throughout history. And it's important to remember that regardless of what religious tradition we're dealing with, whether it be new, whether it be old, any of that, there's always those competing claims. There's those competing traditions. There's, you know, those traditions that split from the main one of here over an issue. Mm -hmm. um, and there's been lots of those. I mean, hell, the Methodist church just did this. Um, yeah. So that's not a new kind of concept. Right. And so that's the other thing that's important to remember about religions is that because they're people, they're not static. They're right. always changing. They're always adapting because the people in them are doing that. Mm -hmm. And so there is a, so even when it feels sort of like, oh, this tradition has been around for 5,000 years and it hasn't changed. Like it's changed a lot. Yeah. It may have changed slowly. Right. But it's not a hopeless venture to sort of try to do those those reformations. They they happen all the yeah. time. Yeah, that's actually really encouraging. Yeah. So that actually kind of brings up the next question, which is, um, you know, when we are feeling anger or resentment or betrayal towards someone, um, can you talk a little bit about the idea of forgiveness and how that might play a role in recovering from trauma, especially in this uh, context of spirituality? Mm. Yeah. Forgiveness is a weird thing. I'm thinking back to like my divinity school days when I was with a lot of pastors and pastors in training and forgiveness was always one of those things that was tricky yeah. because, um, So I don't want to get too theological or anything or, but ultimately if forgiveness is going to be helpful and it's what sort of releases you from the burden of holding on to, to whatever else, then do it. But also don't use forgiveness as one of those, um, oh, this person harmed me. I should forgive them just because that's what I've been told I need to do. Like if the, if anger is the appropriate therapeutic response, be angry before you're all forgiving. Yeah. Um, so that, I think people can, you know, with trauma survivors, it's like, oh, forgive the person who molested you. And it's like, how about be angry that somebody, you know, that was an adult did something, you know, it's like, how about I don't have to forgive them right now if I'm processing that? Yeah, I think it can just be gaslighting and bypasses. It's like a spiritual bypass. I'm doing a thing that I actually don't consent to do in the name of this is the right thing to do. And I think it can really like harm the individual 
who's trying to forgive because they think it's the right thing to do. Yeah, well, absolutely. I'm not saying forgiveness is a terrible concept. Like I'm not saying that. No, no. I think it can be harmful um, in some situations. Well, I think it has been used to uh, bypass consequences as well, which is yes. fun, um, which is why it can be a, a very tricky concept because I think what you initially said is like, sometimes it can be really helpful for people to feel like, you know, no, I'm not absolving you of wrongdoing, but I'm letting go of the part that's, you know, keeping me from moving on. It's not mm-hmm. about the person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think in religious contexts, often it has been used as a way to say, well, you just need to forgive them and move along. And we're just going to pretend like it never happened, which is not okay. So exactly. Yeah. Like what definition are we using for forgiveness here? Yeah. Like what is the context for this? Right. Uh, yeah. It's like everything in context. Right. Yeah. Which may circle back to some of those, those earlier questions of like, when can religion be, be helpful and when can it be potentially harmful for those recovering from these kinds of things? Like if you're, if you're trying to stay in, in those different contexts and all you're being told is, well, just forgive and forget, like mm-hmm. that may be a signal that you need to do something else for a while and maybe step back from that and to reevaluate because Yeah. All right. So we have a couple of case studies here um, that we're going to read, and then Taylor's going to talk a little bit about them. Um, So I'm just going to read the case study. Um, So the first one, we have an LDS member that recently moved from Utah. He's a 17-year-old male and still living at home with his parents who are heavily involved in the church. Um, His father is actually in leadership. Um, He's conflicted because he has recently come out as gay to his therapist. Um, The client currently is trying to figure out if he wants to stay in the church closeted um, and what that means for eternity and family, or if he wants to come out and risk complete excommunication. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation. um, Definitely. Um, and while I'm not a I'm not a mental health professional, but you know, the 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 LDS um, throughout U.S. history, really since they were founded in the 1820s and 1830s, have been a very tight knit community, mm-hmm. and they've been a very tight knit community, sort of from the outset, in part because um, their early proselytization efforts did not go well. Um, in the sense that whenever they moved into different communities, even if they didn't try to really proselytize that much, they were met with a lot of violence. In fact, um, the state of Missouri launched like an all-out war on them in the 1840s um, to where the governor even signed an executive order that like any person in Missouri, didn't even matter if they were a citizen, I don't think, could just kill an LDS member on site. What? Yeah, and that wasn't actually rescinded until like 20 years ago or 10 years ago or something. Not that it was like an active thing, but the way executive orders work is they're kind of active until they're rescinded. And so that was a whole thing. And so the LDS have a huge emphasis on family, both because of that um, sort of early history of sort of being forced out of the United States. Like when the, when the, when the LDS initially settled um, Utah, 
that was outside the bounds of the United States. They left the country. Um, mm-hmm. um, and so all they really had were, were each other in, in those instances. Theologically, they also understand um, the afterlife much differently than uh, conventional, you know, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox Christians do for, 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 for sort of mainline Christians. Mm-hmm. Once you die and if you go to heaven, you're kind of on your own. There's, you know, in like the conventional wedding vows is like till death do us part because you're not married in heaven. Mm-hmm. You are sort of in, you're in paradise, a thing unto yourself just with everything. The LDS don't understand it that way. Um, your family on earth is your family in heaven. Um, marriages are sealed um, through eternity. Um, those don't end. Um, they, they continue. Um, same thing with, with other kinship networks, like kids, grandkids, all of that continues in, in, uh, in the next life. And so there's an additional layer of complexity onto things like divorce or to things like LGBTQ issues for the LDS because of sort of how they understand the afterlife differently from other Christian groups. And because families tend to be really tight knit in the church because it didn't, because it was, you know, essentially met with violence the LDS church operates kind of like a state in that it has different programs that are meant to sort of take care of its membership in a much more uh, complex and detailed way than just like maybe a food drive at the local Baptist church or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Tithing means different things because it sort of goes back into the communities that it serves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's just so much additional layers of pressure that the the person in this scenario is under in making that decision so mm-hmm. i have to imagine they're just beyond a ball of anxiety about it um but um in my experience with with some xlds members lgbtq issues are the number one reason younger LDS are leaving the church. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the official LDS line is that this is unacceptable because this is not how God ordained people to, to live, but we don't treat them. We don't treat, you know, gay people, transgender people, anything like that. We don't treat them with disrespect, but we understand that like they're living in sin and that they're essentially apostates. Mm-hmm. Um, There's no easy in and out of, of this. It is a, because it's not only, you know, a lot of people go to church with people they've known their whole lives, mm-hmm. but you aren't related to all of them in many instances. There are deep kinship networks for a lot of LDS that, you know, are multi-generational. And so it's a super complex issue. And whatever the person decides, they'll need a ton of support. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I once, when I was in divinity school, I once ran into a bartender who saw me reading a book while I was at a restaurant that he was working at. He said, oh, you're reading this book on the LDS. I said, yeah, you know anything about it? He's like, oh yeah, I was, I was raised in it. He's like, my Mm. great grandfather was like, great, great grandfather or something was like the fifth president of the LDS church. And I was like, oh, like, what are you, are you just picking his brain? And he's like, oh no, I'm gay. I left. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, was there any other things that, that made you leave? He's like, really only that issue. Mm. He's like, if they fix that, I'd have no problem going back to the LDS. He's like, I didn't have a problem with anything else. He's like, I found it a valuable community. Mm. And I know that experience is not everyone's. Right. But it's certainly also not a totally unique one either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's tough. Because yeah. the thing that this, the, the, the issue that this student, that this person will have to really contend with is they're going to feel more alone than they've ever felt in their entire life. Yeah. And there's not going to be the kind of immediate community mm-hmm. that they can just sort of readily attach themselves to. Okay maybe if they were a student maybe just starting college or something there'd be some opportunities to do that really quickly mm-hmm. but if the person was like older maybe out of college age or something like there's a lot there mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 well I'll jump into the second one do we have I'll just go ahead and go into it yeah. um so here's our second case study um Well, and just to wrap up the LDS thing, like, I think it's very validating if people from the LDS community can listen to this and be like, yeah, like, it's really hard and very complex, and I just need some help through it. I think it's very validating in that way. Um, So yeah, case study number two, 38-year-old female raised in North Florida as an evangelical independent Baptist has memories from early childhood of Black people being asked to leave the church building because they were not welcome to attend. Fast forward to George Floyd when she left the church because she was tired of trying to fight the system as it pertains to racism. As a teenager, she was encouraged to pledge abstinence until marriage by a pastor who left his wife and children for his church secretary. Now as an adult in therapy, currently unpacking what consent means and what is safe and unsafe. Client is currently trying to figure out what she believes about God and separate what she was taught versus what she now believes. Yeah. That's rough. A couple of things sort of off the top. Um, Christianity, like, like any other tradition, does not have a sort of pure history with lots of issues, race being certainly one that continues to be very contentious and a history of which is very fraught and very polarizing. And the reason for a lot of the different denominational names within Protestant churches in the US, Mm -hmm. a lot of that really does go back to the issue of slavery and how the churches were either divided on it or how much they were willing to emphasize it or not emphasize it as part of their doctrine. And a lot of them went super hardcore into it. which still continues to impact 
you know, well after sort of slavery was was abolished at the end of the Civil War, still very much impacts because to be quite frank, um, there are a lot more passages in the New Testament and in sort of, especially the New Testament, but in the Hebrew Bible as well, that are a lot easier to read as racist than there are passages that can be interpreted as not racist. And what I mean by that is there's lots of instances of slavery in, in the Bible of like racism and those kinds of things in different biblical texts. But if you want to sort of read the Bible in an anti-racist or non-racist way, you can't read it literally all mm -hmm. the time. Um, which a lot of the sort of Protestant communities that do tend to be more racist or at least more racist light or something more prone to it, if not everyone in the, the sort of church, do emphasize a much more literal stance on uh, interpreting the Bible. Because, I mean, this goes back to essentially in, in the 19th century, there was a, a, a new way of interpreting biblical scriptures called higher criticism or sort of the higher critical method. And it basically emphasized things like, all right, well, this, this, a lot of these texts are ancient. Um, how can we understand some of this as maybe allegory? How can we understand this as, you know, at first an oral tradition that got written down later? What could have that been referring to in a historical context? And so instead of just, you know, seeing maybe in Genesis, all of these genealogies and saying, well, what do we do with those? Well, that was a history of a people and how they were keeping track and all these other things. But that sort of immediately puts the Bible in some ways out of reach for a lot of non-specialists. And so it takes the, it puts the impetus on interpretation, on a leader, on a pastor, on maybe someone with advanced degrees, and particularly in a Baptist context, just for this person, well, it's still emphasized in pretty much any Baptist context, whether it's independent, whatever, is the congregation makes all the decisions. Mm -hmm. There's not a governing body that ordains ministers. There is the congregation that ordains that minister. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot at play in that. So issues of race and racism are certainly no stranger to sort of American Protestantism. And it's not going away anytime soon. Uh, the one thing that I always tend to fall back on, especially as like a Christianity 101 thing is theologically at its core with the way that most Christians connect the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament is pretty anti-Semitic like the idea of like supersessionism which is like jesus's words supersede anything in the hebrew texts except for when the hebrew texts are supporting different things mm -hmm. that's really anti-semitic mm -hmm. even if it's not like on its face in the everyday pulpit in the way it may get used mm -hmm. um 
that's not to say all Christians are anti-Semitic or anything, but it is to say that sort of theologically there is that problem yeah. of, of race and ethnicity and different cultures and religious differences sort of at its theological core. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not really a lot of resolution to any of that um, that's easy. The purity culture stuff, I would, we would definitely need another sort of 30 minutes to sort of unpack all of, of those different things. But I mean, there's just, there's so much. And so if I can, as a sort of scholar of religion, say anything to these case studies or anyone else who may relate to them, it's that you're not wrong to feel however you feel. Um, and there is a long history of people going through similar things, sometimes in the same communities, in the same, you know, regions of a country or a nation, and sometimes across vast distances with geography and time. The difficulty of religion and is that it's always changing and it's people and it's got so much potential to be affirming and life-giving and it's got so much potential to tear people down and to sort of create boundaries of uh, you know strict moral codes or uh, hierarchies of good bad and you know diminishing nuance it's all of those things um, all at once and Luckily, we live in an age where therapy exists, mm-hmm. uh, which is a weird thing to say out loud. Um, but yeah. it is it is true that, you know, if you were experiencing anything like either of these problems 100 years ago, uh, you didn't have a lot of choice or a lot of ways to, to manage. And the way that we luckily have a lot more different kinds of tools to sort of work with that now. It's also another reason why a lot of people looked to uh, newer religious traditions or started their own in different days and times uh, because they couldn't have, they couldn't get the help they wanted in their religion or there was no access to sort of mental health care. And so they started schematizing different ways to have a new therapeutic device. Um, A good example of this is actually the church of Scientology Mm -hmm. in that it, you know, at its core, sort of the early teachings and writings of L. Ron Hubbard were really a critique of uh, Freudian psychoanalysis. Mm, Um, And a lot of early Scientologists um, joined in the 50s and 60s because auditing sessions were a lot cheaper and a lot more available than Freudian psychoanalysis was. And you'll find that across a lot of different newer religious traditions and you know, the fact that, you know, pretty much every seminary teaches pastoral care and all of that is some kind of amalgamation of psychological and and therapeutic techniques. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll probably have to have you back on another podcast because I still feel like there's so many more questions and I'd love to hear more about the purity culture, you know, like I, I would like to go more into that. I think it's important. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about the 80s and 90s, culture wars, purity culture, satanic panic. Satanic panic. We can talk about all of it. Yes, yes. (laughs)
I think just all these things that I think, especially just where we live being in the Bible belt, um, just all of these things that you just mentioned, like bring so much shame and they're just common themes that come up even for people who weren't necessarily raised in super religious households, these themes just permeate my sessions because they're culturally now just considered norms, right? Mm -hmm. Because of where we live. Um, and so, yeah, I think it would be really helpful, um, to, to keep talking. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime. Just let me know. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Glad I could do it. All right. Well, we'll have, we'll have more talks. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed that conversation and we hope that you'll join us again next week for more conversations about how to destigmatize trauma in different areas and fields of expertise. Thank you again for listening and we look forward to having you back next week.